right, session two. Thank you, Anthony. One of the things I was thinking as you were preaching was reminded of Martin Lloyd-Jones' line about preaching that preaching is theology coming through a man on fire. It's not just information dissemination or exposition. It certainly isn't less than that, but it's leading are the people in worship as a worshiper. You're more just as much a worship leader in this last hour as Walt and our worship team is. I hope you recognize that, that we're not just receiving information that later we go and worship, but we are, it's an act of worship as we just rejoice in these foundational truths of, of our faith together. It's excellent. All right, so I know we just heard it, but let me just sort of recap where we are here. Where has Paul taken us so far? Um, I'm going to take us six more verses down the field tonight, verses 12 through 17. But so far, Paul has said that at the cross, a transfer occurred or a transaction, as Anthony put it. God did for us what we never could have done for ourselves in putting forward his son in our place. And we just recounted it beautifully in that Wesley hymn. Unpacks so many of the truths in Romans chapter 8 that we just sang. Christ received in himself the full condemnation that you deserved and that I deserved for having utterly failed to fulfill the righteous requirement of his law. And it fell on Christ, and it fell on Christ willingly. He joyfully went to the cross, and he endured it for the joy set before him. And so like we just sang, died he for me, and not just me, but me who caused his pain. So then, as, as Anthony was saying, now when the Holy Spirit applies what Christ has done to you, if you have turned from your sin and trusted Christ, a miracle happened. When you came to the end of yourself, whenever that was, maybe that was tonight, Lord willing. We're praying that maybe that was you. Tonight you came to the end of yourself and you said, that's it, I'm done with my sin. I don't want to stand before a holy God with what I bring to the table. If Christ has done that for me, then, then I want to be with him. I want to be in him. But maybe that happened for you 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago. But regardless, when you came to the end of yourself and you surrendered your life to Christ and you turned from sin, Romans 8.1 became the banner over your whole life. Your whole eternal future is under the banner. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now we dread. But I want us to see as we move on now that this is just the beginning. Being saved from condemnation is just the beginning of God's salvation for us and applying all of the blessings that are now ours in Christ for us. Forgiveness is just the beginning. Freedom from uh, guilt and, and having comfort now and freedom is just the beginning. And he said, this, I, uh, there are no for, there are therefore now no condemnation is a declaration of freedom, and it is. But then the question is, if we've been set free, free given freedom for what? Well, to walk in freedom, to, to actually do something with this freedom, to live a new life. I want us to see here tonight in, in verses 12 through 17, God has saved us to something glorious, he saved us to a new life, a spirit-awakened life. That's what that hymn got at. We were dead and in prison, and, and, and God spoke and, and, and called us to life in the first place by his spirit. But now we're called to live a spirit-filled life, a spirit-enabled life, a spirit-empowered life, a spirit-driven and led and guided life. We're to live a supernatural life, um, 
He just mentioned this book by Ray Ortland. I was going to mention it too. Um, Ray's going to be preaching for us tomorrow morning and tomorrow night. And he has this wonderful short little book just on the chapter of Romans 8. But he could have titled it More Than Conquerors, which would be, maybe he thought of that. But uh, he ended up going with this, Supernatural Living for Natural People. That's how he summed up the message of Romans 8. Supernatural living for, super, for natural people. And that's what we're going to see here is God has saved us to a supernatural life. Notice again, we sang, my chains fell off, I was set free, but then what? Well then, I, I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee now in this life and into eternity. And this life is a spirit-filled life. Jesus didn't endure your death sentence and open the dungeon and lead you out off of death row to drop you at a bus stop bench with a few bucks and say, all right, you take it from here. You're on your own. Good luck. Don't land yourself back in here. Like Anthony said, the door only goes one way. And now his spirit is going to get us home. This life we're called to live is one that we could never live on our own and we will never live on our own. It's a spirit led life. Look at the last verse where we just left off, verse 11, chapter 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, well then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And like Anthony just said, big picture, that means that one day we are going to be resurrected to new imperishable bodies like Jesus, God's Son, has ascended at the right hand of the Father right now. We will be given bodies that never wear out, that are completely Godward in orientation, that are free of sin and never will die and will live with God forever in a new earth where nothing will ever decay and die and will be with him forever. But he also said that this resurrection life doesn't wait until the return of Jesus to get started. But it begins now in our mortal bodies as we await our immortal bodies. The Christian life is a supernatural life. So turn to chapter 8, verse 12 through 17 because the next verse starts with, so then, brothers. So in other words, in light of this foundation that we have of what God's done for us that we never could have done for ourselves, and in light of the fact that though we used to be completely incapable of pleasing God, now he's come to dwell in us by his spirit. So now we're cooking with gas. Now we can get somewhere we never could have before Christ did this miracle called conversion. So let's read. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also 
be glorified with him. Let's pray. God, we've just seen this life that you call us now to live until Jesus returns is a supernatural life. We cannot do it apart from your help, which means we need to do it prayerfully and humbly and dependently with careful attention to what you have told us. You have given us everything we need here in your word uh, for life and godliness. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that you would use these words, Holy Spirit, to help us do the very things these words hold out for us by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of our body, and find life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we were just asked about that little book that was recommended to you. Do you ever feel discouraged in your Christian life? Do you, ever, do you feel defeated ever by sin? Just feel like it just has a chokehold on you. And here we go again with the very same temptations and, the, and another week just that goes in the tank that you almost can't get yourself to church on Sunday because you're not sure you can look people in the eye. Have you ever felt just defeated by sin? Because these verses, these six verses are for you. Because these verses essentially invite you like another hymn we sing, come sinners, poor and needy, weak, wounded, sick, sore. Why? Well, because Jesus is ready and he stands to save you and he's full of pity and he's full of love and he's full of power. And he's not just full of pity and love and power to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, which he is, but he's also full of pity, love, and power to lead you out of your sin as conqueror, as more than conquerors through him who loved you and to help you grow in grace and walk in new life and walk in a wide open place like the Psalms talk about. That's what these verses are for. And so I really want three points, three headings if you're taking notes. In verses 12 and the beginning of 13, even though Anthony's absolutely right, there are no imperative statements in this chapter, but there are definitely some implied, so what are you going to do about that, truths and questions that are laid out for us. And I think in verse 12 and the beginning of 13, essentially he's, he's saying, folks, no turning back. Why would you ever turn back now that you've come to be in Christ? The second half of verse 13, he essentially is going to say, go on the attack. Let's attack our sin. And in the last four verses, 14 through 17, he says, as you attack, fight like a son, not like a slave. So that's it. No turning back. Go on the attack. Fight like a son, not a slave. Let's just walk through those. Verse 12. No turning back. He says, so then, brothers, in light of where the flesh leads us, will always lead us, in light of where the Spirit wants to lead us, he says, so then, brothers, we're not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Again, what he means by flesh is he means who you and I are just naturally from birth, who we are apart from God divinely intervening and doing something about our fallenness and our depravity. It's just us and everything we bring to the table, all of our pitiful best efforts to try to please God that fall short, 
and all of our miserable failures as we often just decide to live as our own gods. All of that he would call the flesh. It's what we have to bring to the table apart from a miracle of God. And he says, we're not debtors to that flesh anymore, which is kind of weird to say. We don't owe that flesh anything anymore. Here's what I think he means by that. Um, Let me back up. I want to say Jeremiah chapter 2 has this statement about sin that I think beautifully captures the futility of living according to our flesh. Maybe you've read this before. God says of Israel at the time, my people have committed two evils. The first one is they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They could have real life through me. He says, but the second sin is this. They've hewed out or dug out cisterns for themselves. Cisterns are wells, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what we build in our flesh. In all of our attempts, all of our best attempts and our worst failures, we're just digging out leaky wells that can't hold water. That's living according to the flesh. And Paul's saying, you don't know that anything. You don't know the flesh anything. Another preacher said it like this, you owe the flesh nothing but enmity and war. It's been trying to kill you since the day you were born. Or Paul says in Galatians 5.1, I think the very same sentiment when he says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Duh. The word free is right there in the word freedom, right? (laughs) That's what he means for us to have by setting us free. And then he says, so stand firm therefore and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. I think submitting again to a yoke of slavery is another way of saying, acting as if you owe the flesh anything, as if the flesh has ever done anything to give any of us real, long-lasting, life-giving value. The flesh has always led to death, and it always will lead to death, so why would we bother going back to it? You know, we sang in that's one of the songs earlier at the beginning, I won't be shackled by the way I was. That's the idea of Brothers, we're not debtors to the flesh anymore. God set us free from that. Why would we ever be sh- continue to live as if we're shackled to what God has set us free from? Don't turn back. So the other question Paul says is, why not? Well, look at verse 13. This is one of those very blunt sentences in the Bible. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's worth writing on post-it notes and putting it all the places that you look daily because if you're like me, every day my sin nature is irrational and has spiritual amnesia. I can so relate, can't you, to Israel soon after God had liberated them from slavery with treasures on their back to take to a promised land that was going to be flowing with milk and honey where God was going to plant them and be their God. And they're not soon out of dodge and things start to get hard and they all start saying, oh, you remember how good we had it back in Egypt? Remember the cucumbers and the... Moses will say, what? You were slaves to a tyrant who was working you to death. But when we want to go back to living according to the flesh, it's as foolish as saying, oh, remember how good it was back in Egypt? Or I was thinking of Lot's wife. When we're tempted to turn back and living according to the flesh and and run back after things for which Christ died, it's just like Lot's wife turning back and longingly looking at things that God's judgment was literally falling upon. And something in her still wanted that. That's what we're like when we want to live according to our flesh still. We're being drawn to something that Christ died for those things. 
Paul's wanting to say, why would we ever be tempted to go back and live according to the flesh now that we've tasted of being adopted as sons, as we're going to see in this passage? I was thinking, it's like that pen that we all have. I know you have it in your junk drawer somewhere in the house. And you pull it out to write a check, which you never do anymore, so you have to write on something else. And it doesn't write, and you're like, ah, oh, why didn't I throw this thing out? But what do you do? You put it back in the drawer, right? Only like till a week later, you pull that thing out when you need to write a grocery list. You're like, ah, this thing doesn't work. And you shake it like this, and you try a little bit more, and you put it back in the drawer. Every time you pull it out, you're like, why don't I just throw this thing away? But for some reason, we should be foolishly keep. It's like that. He said, why would you ever go back to living according to the flesh? It leads to death. <laughs> Throw it out already, Paul's saying. So I want to ask you here for a minute, before we go on, to <laughs> ask yourself the question, where am I most inclined to turn back? What in my life represents pulling out that same pen and hoping this time it writes, only to be disappointed again? This morning, God wants you to say, throw it out. Turn from it. Don't turn back to it. For some of you, the ways that you turn back and live according to the flesh are by being still drawn to sins for which Christ died, but still they hold, uh, have a grip on your heart. For others of you, I think maybe your tendency to keep turning back to the flesh is living out the foolishness that Paul describes in Galatians 3.3. When he says, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now perfected by the flesh? Well, you, you, you sort of think, well, Jesus sort of got me out of jail. Thank you very much, but I can take it from here. And you're just going to really keep trying to go back to the route of just trying to be impressive to God. You'll never succeed. Christ alone is, is impressive to God. And all you need to be is in him. So Paul couldn't be more blunt. If you live according to the flesh, one way or another, morally religious but fleshly or debauched and depraved fleshly, either road leads to death. You will die, he says. So no turning back. But then he says at the end of verse 13, go on the attack. He says, yeah, so if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. I want to pause again and think. We, another song we sang this morning, that we sang, or the, this evening, with great joy and victory, rightly so, but I want to make sure we're thinking correctly. We sang, gone, gone, now my sin is dead and gone. And maybe some of you are thinking, not my sin. Did you see my week I just lived? So in one sense, the reign of sin is gone, like Anthony said. And the guilt of our sin is gone. And God is, couldn't be more pleased with us in Christ. We are clothed in righteousness divine. And the, the chains of sin that made it so that the law, uh, we could never fulfill the law, um, have been broken. But man, the expression of our sin and our sin nature is far from gone yet, right? Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say this. He wouldn't say, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you'll live. Our sin nature doesn't go quietly. So Paul says we're to get violent toward our sin. He says we're to be exterminators. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say if by the Spirit we restrain the deeds of our body. If by the Spirit uh, you rehabilitate the deeds of your body. Or if by the Spirit you just suppress the deeds of your body and you just keep them from popping out. No, he says if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. He wants us to kill it. 
John Owen, the Puritan, wrote an entire book, as Puritans were known for doing, on half of one verse. This half of the verse, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And he said that is worthy of a, a whole book. On the mortification of sin. We re- if this is such an important concept, which it is, he said this deserves a book. And he, he thinks about it. Um, how do we, by the Spirit, put sin to death? And he famously in that book wrote, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's either or, and it's, progr- it's ongoing. It's not just kill sin once and move on like this, but daily, Christian, be killing sin by the Spirit, which we're going to get to. Otherwise, it will be killing you. It doesn't take a day off. And so tonight, if, if we have unrighteous anger in your heart, or roots of bitterness that are growing, or resentment toward others, Paul's saying, kill it. (laughs) If you are in the grip of gluttony, or self-medicating, or drunkenness, Paul's saying, kill it. Don't manage it. Kill it. Are you selfish? Are you self-centered or self-righteous? Are you like that Pharisee that Jesus told the story about that looked over at the tax collector on his face just saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you look and say, I'm so thankful that I'm not like that man. Paul would say, kill that. (laughs) That deserves to die. Lust, immorality, envy in our hearts, coveting, comparing ourselves to one another and finding our identity in just being a little bit better than our neighbor dishonesty, cheating. He says, by the Spirit, kill it. Kill it. Declare war on sin is what he's calling us to. Uh, Look at this quote. This is Ed Welch in a book with a a powerful image for the title. The title, it's a book on uh, battling addictions with the gospel, from a gospel mindset. And he titles the book, A Banquet in the Grave. That's how he, the imagery he uses for um, our, our addictions and our pet sins, enjoying a banquet, but you're in the grave. And he says this, the, the only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. He says there's something about war that sh- sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves, and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs, and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. That's the sort of attitude I think Paul wants to stir in us when he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. War. If something is actively seeking to kill you, doesn't it just make sense to not passively wait it out and hope that it goes away and subsides? I mean, honest, literally, if you went out jogging in Carbon Canyon and a mountain lion attacked you and it latched on and you realized it's not running away, it, it, it's, it's on for good, you would poke, stab, squeeze, scratch, bite. I mean, you'd grab for anything you could desperately to get that thing off, wouldn't you? No? You'd just say, it's it, it's over. It's over for me. I had a good run. <laughs> oh, you said, yeah. Okay. Of course you would. If, if it's you or the lion and only one of you is getting out of there alive, you're going to do everything, right? <laughs> but... You don't just say, I'll ignore it and hopefully it'll just get tired of me and walk away. But I think sadly that might be how many of us are dealing with sin in our life, even serious sin. It's like your clothes are on fire and you're like, huh, hopefully it'll just burn out on its own. I'll just wait it out. Paul's saying, no, God wants to rouse you to action. 
Because it's in this battle, only one will come out alive. If you live according to flesh, you will die. If you live by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, then you'll live. Wake up, he's saying. And notice one more thing about killing, the, killing sin here in verse 13. It's not just getting rid of what's bad, but it's so that we might have life. It's the positive of saying, so if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, then we'll really live. And you know why I think he says that? Because sadly, we need to hear it because the reason that we can be reluctant and sort of like, oh, I sure hope the, well, the lion lets go soon is because honestly, we each have sins that we're not so sure we want to let go of because we feel like, I just don't know if I can live without them. That's what sin tells us. You can't live without this. And God's saying, no, it's just the opposite. You can't live with this. So he says, by the Spirit, Let's put it to death. It made me think Augustine famously in his confessions, in his testimony as a young man who was feeling lots of hormones going and uh, he wasn't ready to walk away from it yet. And he prayed, God grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. <laughs> Paul's saying, no, no, no. <laughs> Kill it, right? But notice then the how is really important. Look at the verse again. If by the Spirit... I don't care if you don't underline in your Bible. You should underline by the Spirit so you don't miss it. If you remove those three verses from, words from this verse, we're just right back in verse three, uh, uh, three with the law weakened by the flesh never being able to do anything. He says, but if by the Spirit. Because see, the way that you begin to put sin to death by the Spirit in the first place is something you, you, had, you didn't do. God took your stony heart while you were dead in your trespasses. He made you alive with Christ and he replaced your heart now with a heart that is alive to God and actually now sees what God says is good as good. And what God says is evil is evil. Not completely yet. Our sin nature still likes to lie and pull us the other way. But it begins there that by the Spirit, like we sang, you are a new creation. You are not fast bound in sin and nature's night. You are a new creation. You are alive in him, your living head. So that's where it starts. We kill sin by the Spirit in the first place because made us, God made us alive by his Spirit and his Spirit dwells in us now. But then he's saying we have an active role in this. We can, by the Spirit, put to death what's earthly in us, he says in Colossians 3. So how do we kill sin by the Spirit? Well, I would put it like this. In one way, we arm the Spirit, so to speak, not that the Spirit can't do anything without that, but we're called in many places to do what seems to be arming the Spirit, giving the Spirit something with which to work to lead us out of sin into life. He says, back at, look at back in eight, Romans 8, 5. Look how this works. He says, so those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on things of the flesh. But here, this seems to be now the people who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. He says, those who live according to the Spirit, that's what we're talking about, what do they do? They set their minds on things of the Spirit. That's how we arm the Spirit to put to death what's earthly in us. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit, which just punts to another question. So what exactly are the things of the Spirit? Well, I want to point out, we've been in 1 Corinthians recently, Grace, and if you've been here, we've heard Paul use this exact same phrase about the things of the Spirit. Look at this. He said, again, of the two kinds of people, natural man and those whom God has made alive and spiritual people, he says, we have received not the Spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who's from God so that we might understand the things, the things freely given us by God. That's talking about God's revealed word, his revelation of himself, his purposes, his promises, his plans, his warnings. And then Paul says, we as apostles, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Look at this. He says, the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Again, what does he mean by there? The Word of God, the revelation of God. The natural man doesn't, he just dismisses it. He says it's folly to him. And he's not able to understand because they're spiritually discerned, these things of the Spirit, right? The things of the Spirit are God's Word, His revelation of Himself, which ultimately means the things of the Spirit are the God to whom His Word points us. It's who He is and all His promises and all of His character and all of His purposes. And we are to set our minds on those things. And then I think with our minds set on the things of God, I think that we fight by the Spirit from a couple of angles. One is we find in places like 1 Corinthians 10, 13. In these moments of temptation where these temptations, those deeds of the body that have a pull on us, I love this verse. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but notice what he'll do. With the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, haven't you had those moments? Many of those moments as a Christian? These moments of temptation, these moments where your heart is inclined in a way um, towards sin and you feel that pull. But in that moment of decision, you are also aware, you're very aware, this leads to death. I've seen this before. I know this is going to be disappointing and leave me feeling guilty and ashamed. You feel that pull. But in the moment, there's also this thought of this isn't life. And maybe even God's word comes to your mind, warnings from God's word or assurances or promises of better or words about the beauty of Christ come into your mind. And the question is in those moments, what do you do? And we've all done this, haven't we? Sometimes in those moments, we see it. I mean, we're like, I see that off ramp right there, God. I'm just not going to take it. And we just harden our heart a little bit and we push through. We go after the deeds of the flesh. But at times, in those moments, we see with clarity and the Holy Spirit gives us this desire to cry out, Lord, help me here. Help me. That leads to death. God, lead me toward life. And we resist it. And we're able to escape. I think that that is one of the fronts on which we, by the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. But I think in a greater way, or in a more preemptive, cumulative way, we are called day by day setting our minds on the things of the Spirit to sever the roots of our sin. Look at this from Ephesians 6, 10. I think this is talking about putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit and doing it in advance, working in advance to do this. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And I love this. And having done all to stand firm. At the end of the day, who empowers righteousness and who empowers repentance in our hearts? It's the Holy Spirit who gets the the kudos and the praise. But Paul can still say, Christian, have you done all 
to stand firm? Having done all, have you put on the armor? He goes on. What is this armor? He says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. Guard your mind and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying then at all times in the spirit, having set my mind on the things of God. And then we pray with all prayer and supplication, not just once, but ongoing. And to that end, we keep alert with perseverance and it's a team effort. And we make supplication for all the saints. And when we do this, what we are doing is ensuring that the day that sin comes really looking for us, it doesn't find a sitting duck, it finds an armored soldier and an armed soldier. If you notice, not just the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, but if you look at every piece of the armor, it's all the Word of God, right? What is the shield of faith other than faith in the God who's revealed himself to me to be in the Bible, a, a faithful God who can always be trusted, whose word is unbreakable? What is truth other than God's truth revealed to us by which we can, we can, we can stake our flag in it and say, I can trust that, right? It, it's all God's word. It, the things of the Spirit are all through this. And what we do daily is we fill our minds with this. We set our minds on this. And the Spirit takes this and helps us in the day by day in those moments to have victory. And so I want to ask, have you done all? Are you doing all to stand firm? Tonight, I think that the Holy Spirit for each of us is pointing to particular sins in our hearts, in our minds, and saying, hey, that, let's kill that. Let's choke that out. Let's just drown that out with the beauty and the glory of the love of God for us in Christ. Everything Anthony just preached, let's just drown that out completely. Let's put that in the rearview mirror. No turning back. Go on the attack. But last, here is the whole mindset and, and motivation out of which we fight. He says, fight like a son, not like a slave. Notice what he says about slaves. Verse 15, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Our fight to kill sin should never be fueled by fear. Yes, holy reverence of God, we should never lose, even though he's our heavenly father, but not fear of retribution, fear that condemnation's gonna come back as a card on the table. That voice that we hear at our, in our heads at times, obey or else, is not the spirit of adoption as sons. That's the spirit of slavery. Slaves serve out of fear of their masters that if they step out of line, the hammer's gonna drop. And we have seen here in the first section, God has already dropped the hammer permanently on Christ for all of your sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in Christ so that he could look at you and say, no condemnation. So whatever motivates us now to, to, to live the Christian life and to try to obey God's law and to kill sin is not fear. It's not a slave mentality. Here's the difference between fighting like a slave and fighting like a son. I love this tweet. I wrote it down about a month ago and I remembered it yesterday. Religion says this, oh, I've messed up. Dad's gonna kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I need to call dad. 
I can run to him because he's my father. He's not my task. He's not my slave master. He loves me. We can do this. The first one, religion, I've messed up, dad's going to kill me. That's the law of sin and death that the spirit set us free from. The second one, I've messed up, I need to call dad, is the law of the spirit from lo- of life. And that's where we now operate. Because we're not just forgiven, we're family. And here's what I want us to see. We're to fight like sons. There's something greater than forgiveness. It's being family. All who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Another book recommendation. You won't find this copy out on the patio because this was Jack Mitchell's hardback copy from, what year was it? 1973, Jack is with the Lord now and he knows God in a way that I can't wait to. He's got his notes in here, his underlines. But I went back to knowing God this week. He has a whole chapter on this truth about us that in Christ we are sons of God. And he makes this statement that at first might sound heretical to you. I'm gonna say it. He says, adoption is the highest privilege the gospel affords. It's even higher than justification. And at first you might say, wait a minute. Justification by faith, that's foundational. That's the center that Christ became my substitute. And and Packer said, I know, I know, calm down. He's not saying it's the most foundational truth of the gospel. He's saying it's the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Hear him out. He says adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. See, justification is a legal idea, and it's conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge, which isn't a bad thing. That's true. He is the judge of all the earth. And in justification, God as judge declares of penitent or repentant believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death their sins deserve because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. But here's, listen to this, but you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. You know what? That would be pretty great. To escape the wrath of God is incredible. But it's not the highest gift that God gives us. He says adoption's a family idea. And it's conceived in terms of love and views God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and he establishes us as children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right, get this, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the father is greater. That's what he's saying here. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You've received adoption as sons. And I want to point two things out, two incredible gifts that we are given by being adopted by God. And I'm going to take them in the reverse order of how Paul gives them. I hope that's okay with you. First, second, he says, we're given status of adoption. In other words, God speaks an external word over us, a declaration, and that word is heir. That becomes your status. Your status used to be hanging around your neck, slave. Now he's taken that off and he's spoken over you this external word about you that the way he views you now is a child and if a child, then an heir. And don't get hung up on him saying spirit of adoption is sons. He's not being sexist. I hope you know that. 
In fact, it's very much the opposite. He doesn't, when he says we've received the spirit of adoption as sons, he doesn't want you to think adoption as males. He wants you to think adoption as heirs. As the, he wants you to think of the firstborn son who gets the inheritance. He wants to say, yeah, like that, except everyone becomes co-heirs with the firstborn son. Everyone's invited. Men, women, boys, girls. This beautiful external word, heir. And remember, what has Christ inherited? Everything. So if we're co-heirs with Christ, we have inherited everything. I want to try to illustrate this. Because when we come to Christ, I don't think we even get even the slightest idea of what an amazing thing is, is that we become heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What is true of us when you first came to Christ and he first adopted you and spoke that word over your head was inheritors of everything. I want to, on the day that, so for those of you who don't know, um, God has made us parents three times over by the wonderful gift of adoption of which we are deeply grateful. And this, is our, this was our son Elijah, our youngest, who just turned six in August, but he was two on that day. He had just turned two a month before we got to China uh, to get him. And on, in that picture, his name was uh, Shin Chu Lei. But by the end of that meeting, when we left that place and got on a bus, his name was Elijah James Chulay Clark. And I brought this. We have one of these for each of our kids. This, this two-gallon Ziploc bag contains all of his earthly possessions at the time. That's it. Everything that belonged to Elijah was there. Do you notice any people, family in there? No family. There's the clothes right here on his back, that stripy shirt, and the crazy funky pattern pants and these goofy shoes, which actually technically didn't belong to him. If the orphanage, if we could have given them back, they would have gladly taken them back and used them again for another kid. So really they were loners. He didn't really own those. And you think, oh, well, he owns some toys. Well, these toys we sent ahead to him as a gift while he was waiting for us to get travel clearance. And this picture in a frame was the picture of our family of four at the time so he could look at it and begin to be explained to him by that woman right there that you have a family that's coming to get you. But in that moment right there that we got him, even though he had no clue what was going on, everything that was ours was suddenly his. He didn't even realize it yet. He'd been given a mom and a dad and a sister and a brother and aunties and uncles and cousins and a church family, so many more aunties and cousins and uncles. He'd been given a bedroom filled with furniture he had yet to lay eyes on and a, a dresser full of clothes that he was going to wear, brand new superhero shirts that he loves. And he's in our will. And all that happened then when that external word was declared over him, child of the Clarks, heir of the Clarks, and I want us to see how much more has been given to us here as God spoke this word air over us. Of all things, I was thinking, 1 Peter 2, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Or 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. It's all yours. And so here's a question. How does that relate to waging war with sin? Is this the controlling identity out of which you fight against sin. It's, I am a precious, beloved child and heir of the living God, and, he, and, and my father only wants me to kill sin because he wants me to look more like him. And he wants me to know the joy of life in fellowship with him and a life that loves the things he loves and hates the things he hates. 
life that's lived, a fight that comes out of the assurance that I couldn't be more gods than I am right now. And he wants us to know this more so that we trust him then in the ways that he says leads to life and that he's for us and not against us. And get this, he knew how this wonderful word spoken over us, air, would be hard for us to come to grips with and really own and rest in. And so not only has he given us status of adoption, but he's given us the spirit of adoption, Paul says. This is amazing. God has also spoken this beautiful internal word into your heart, your, the, 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 the center of who you are the very you that is you, the Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. This to me is where God's adoption of us blows its human reflection in human earthly adoption out of the water and exceeds it. One more picture of of Elijah. As we left, that picture on the left is of him in my arms on the bus. We had just left. He had just left the arms of that caregiver that he'd known for two years. And he had finally stopped crying and was just sort of shell-shocked. And he just fatigued and kind of slumped into my shoulder and I was singing hymns into his ear as we were driving on the bus. And Betsy snapped that picture. And we got back to the hotel room and I sat down on the bed and sat him looking at me in my, in my lap like that and was just r- rubbing his back and, and singing to him and just trying to communicate with everything I had that we love you, buddy, and I know this feels like you just got kidnapped, but we've got great plans for you but you can see the look on his face. Man, it's not registering in here yet, is it? No. Thankfully, as time goes on, and we kept calling him our son and and teaching him, I'm Baba, this is Mama, this is your sister JJ, this is Gaga, and this is your family. And over time, as he sees us love him and and we're not going anywhere, his assurance grows. But man, on that day, how I wish I could have entered into his heart and mind somehow and from the inside out helped him understand and see me, that's dad. That's why adoption isn't a big enough analogy for our salvation. It's great, but it's almost like we are adopted and biologically made gods as well. First John 3, God's seed now comes to abide in us. His spirit enters into our, the very core of our being and testifies to us, God, your father, you can believe that. You can take that to the bank. And then it leads, last thing, amazing words to start coming out of our mouth. It allows us the confidence to speak back to God, Abba, Father, and to pray with, to him with the audacity that he would hear our every request and care about those things and long to answer them. The Spirit helps us and assures us your Father sits on the throne of heaven. He commands heaven and earth, and you can ask him for anything, and he hears, and he knows best, and he'll answer according to what is actually best for you. So friends, we don't need to remain defeated in our sin tonight, I hope you realize. We don't have to stay in shackles to it. We can be conquerors because we've been adopted as heirs and children of God, and he's dwelling in us, and he wants us to to have victory We won't have perfect victory until the day of our resurrection when sin is eradicated and forever in the rearview mirror. But that doesn't mean we're not going to make some progress by his help. And I'm going to leave the last phrase here of our passage. This isn't a cheat move, but provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him for tomorrow as Ray comes back. Paul's shifting gears right there and he's saying, Christians, it's not going to be easy. 
It will not be in the arena of ease and comfort that we fight to kill sin. But we have an incredible future ahead, and we're going to be able to taste it here in the Shadowlands, as C.S. Lewis would call it. Even though we won't be engulfed in it and surrounded with it until Jesus returns. So as we finish, I just was thinking one last line. We've been quoting from hymns tonight, but from In Christ Alone. So church, until he returns or calls us home, here in the power of Christ, let's stand. Let me pray. Holy Spirit who, who dwells within us, Lord, I pray that you would uh, continue to increase that spirit of adoption that cries, Abba, Father, that it would, be the, it would control us. It would be the very f- uh, filter and lens through which we see you every day. And it would lead us to trust you and obey you and love you and worship you and live for your glory in our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.